Welcome to Boiling Point. Dreams of visiting Mars have been part of human imagination for centuries. But now that these dreams are closer to realization than ever before, so are the concerns of how we will treat the planets we will visit. Join us as we explore the emerging field of planet conservation. Welcome back to Boiling Point, the weekly science show on Eastside 89.7 FM. On the show today, it's your hosts, Ina and Elizabeth. Hello. Today we are chatting to Claire Fletcher. Claire is a PhD candidate in UNSW in Sydney, who studies the exogeoconservation of Mars. Welcome to the show, Claire. Hi, guys. Thanks for having me today. So, exogeoconservation is a mouthful. Could you please explain what it means? Absolutely. It is definitely a mouthful. Um, basically, it just breaks down. Exo means space, geo means rocks, and conservation is exactly what you know it to be. That's all. It was just a word invented in 2018 by some authors to describe a brand new field of conserving space rocks. So it refers to any, like, any space rock, or like, is it specifically planets? It can be anything. No one has used it for anything and everything. Uh, for the most part, it gets used to talk about either the moon or Mars. Occasionally, some people want to talk about comets of particular importance, but theoretically, it can be used for anything outside of Earth. Okay, and like, how do you study the conservation of other planets? That is an excellent question. Uh, conservation is one of those things where studying it is bit of a mix of a lot of things. There's a bit of knowledge about the environment broadly um, and all your things that you would find in that in terms of on, on rocks and on space, uh, in space I guess, that's more geology focused or astrobiology, the potential for life um, on, on Mars. But there's also aspects of policy and law, aspects of social sciences in how people interact with each other and how they perceive certain ideas and understand certain ideas and social science in sort of um, how we come to a consensus of, of things. And what in this like huge mishmash do you study? I do a bit of all of it, a little bit of everything. Jack of all trades, master of none. Um, <laughs> definitely. So my background is traditional like environmental management. Um, so that's where I begin everything. But along the way, I am learning a lot about geology, about astrobiology, about international law and governance. I did a little bit of international relations during my undergraduate degree. So that comes in handy more often than you'd think. Um, but knowing how nations relate to each other and why policy is written in certain ways and how it's enacted is a bit of flavor to throw into the mix. Can you give us the trash about like the nation that is against exogeoconservation? I don't think anyone has like <laughs> it's too new for anyone to say I'm against it. I think this is a bad idea. There are some nations who have their own like national laws where you go, "Whoa, that's like that's like a wild law." But all of them seem to have this real mix between really like unregulated space sectors but then trying to regulate really strongly on environmental reasons. So 
Why that is, couldn't tell you, but national law doesn't really mean anything when you're talking about Mars. So it's not really relevant. Whereas uh, United Nations and the sort of soft laws they make is more relevant, though you could ask the question, how do you enforce that on Mars? And no one has a good answer for that yet. <laughs> um, but there's, yeah, there's no real one nation, you know, dishing the dirt <laughs> yet, I guess. <laughs> Um, and, like, I totally ignored the fact that you said life on Mars. So, was there a life on Mars? Will be a life on Mars? Give us the hot <laughs> news. It's hardly hot news. Um, the, the short answer is no to all of those things. The long answer is as far as we know. <laughs> um, so... I think a site that is really interesting to me and is really interesting to a lot of people in the astrobiology field is called Home Plate. And it's in a region called Columbia Hills where the Spirit Rover explored. So Spirit found or came to this place in 2006. Spirit launched, launched, landed on Mars, I forget, in 04. Um, and it lasted a really long time. It was twin rovers with opportunity. They were on opposite sides of the planet, but exactly the same rover trying to do the same things and that was understand the potential for habitability and this site home plate has a thing called digitates and all that means is a finger-like structure they literally look like little tiny weeny like millimeter sized fingers but like lots of them not like a normal hand like yucky <laughs> yucky growing out of each other not yucky special <laughs> uh, they're a bit weird when you look at them to be honest but on Earth, we've got these exact same structures in hot spring environments, and they are made... We think you can only get that shape with microbes. It's what we call microbially mediated. Um, so insofar as we know, you only get that sort of a shape in the rocks because of microbes. So the fact that it's on Mars seems like good evidence that that might have once been life, like billions of years ago, not still alive, but... We don't know. Spirit didn't have the equipment to test that and prove whether or not it was alive. We probably will never prove on Mars whether something was or wasn't alive. We'll have to bring it back here for further study. But that's a site that a lot of people in astrobiology are pretty interested in. Some people find it controversial, but that's always the way in science. So, <laughs> so question have you seen The Martian? And is The Martian at all accurate? I watched The Martian this year Ooh. because someone I went on a date with asked me to watch it. <laughs> so that's embarrassing. Um, <laughs> but is it accurate? Probably not. Um, theoretically, you could send people to Mars and they're, you know spaceship could have whatever issues and they'd leave some guy there for dead. Um, that's typically not how space missions go down. They put survival over everything else. So leaving some guy on Mars, Matt Damon or otherwise, is <laughs> typically not recommended. Um, growing potatoes in your own poo? Yeah. Yeah, that is actually probably what people would do if they were living on Mars. Um, or some kind of vibe of that uh you need to add nutrients to the soil because there's no organic matter on mars because there's nothing alive there and most things don't grow very well without organic matter and potatoes are something that grow pretty easily 
in a lot of conditions. The other thing is like lettuce. So they grow a lot of lettuce on the International Space Station. So if you want to diet of like potato salad, <laughs> space is the place for you. <laughs> Fun. And, and so I guess like how feasible is like for humans to visit Mars or even, I don't know, even live there? And like, what are your thoughts on like living permanently on Mars? Yeah. So the feasibility of going there, I mean, we can't, we don't know how to send a person there yet and have the person, you know, survive. Um, and again, survival is key. We would love if people didn't die on Mars. It takes anywhere between like kind of six and 10 months to get to Mars. On average, it's about nine. So, you know, make the toss up, have an entire child or go to <laughs> Mars. Mm, your choice. Go to uh, Mars. Exactly. Of That's the correct answer. <laughs> So um, it takes a while to get there. And if we could land people safely there, then good for them. Um, the concept of having people live on Mars is probably not going to happen in sort of my lifetime. So it's not, it's not going to happen in the next like 80 years kind of thing. Um, but Will we get people going there for scientific missions, kind of like how Antarctica used to operate? People go there for tourist reasons now. Yeah, maybe. Um, in the next sort of 20 to, put a broad time scale on it, 20 to maybe 50 years. Um, yeah, NASA reckons maybe the 2040s. Realistically, that probably means the 2050s. <laughs> But we could we could be seeing, you know... 50-year-olds 50 who are, like, in high school now when they're 50 going to Mars or whatever. Yeah. That's really cool. And, like, I guess with the opportunity of exploration of Mars, how how conservation ties in? And especially with scientific exploration, you obviously really want to understand Mars and what's on it, but also you don't want to destroy anything too precious. And we are very bad at it, like, on Earth, so... Yeah, planets. we've had a few um, missteps, some might say, on Earth. Uh, <laughs> I did a master's talking about Earth conservation, where people stole rocks out of the ground, and we can't work out who it was or why, <laughs> so there's that. Um, but as we go to explore Mars more, there are definitely a lot of concerns. There's the concerns that I talk about, and there's also concerns that are talked about and have been talked about for decades now, which is that we don't want to bring microbes to Mars accidentally. Because the reason that we go to Mars at the moment is to work out, was it ever habitable? And with the most recent rover, Perseverance, was there ever life there? So if we're trying to find life and you accidentally bring life there yourself, you've just ruined your entire experiment that cost you tens to hundreds of billions of dollars and decades of time. So that's not a good look, typically. In terms of more what I do, the geological protection, um, <clears throat> there's the issue of sites that might have evidence of life um, and the ancient environments that tell us about where that life lived, how, how it evolved, what was going on on Mars. We're talking about like three and a half billion years ago for the most part. So 
that's a long time ago and something that has lasted that long if you go and land a rocket straight on top of it and it destroys the entire site you've just lost a lot of information potentially that has lasted billions and billions of years so there are there are issues with um with like the continued exploration of mars and it's it's less that what we're doing right now is a massive problem and has to stop it's just thinking about the future trying to learn from what we've done on earth where we haven't thought forwards enough um and learning those lessons and trying to have a bit of precaution to make sure that we don't destroy something before we know the value we have to know the value first we have to study the science first right and so i assume none of these laws were in place w- when we landed on the moon so like did anything important got destroyed on the moon so the first sort of international treaty regarding space is the outer space treaty inventive name i know um, <laughs> and it is from 1967 i think don't quote me Uh, <laughs> yeah, it was during the Cold War, as I recall, because yeah. they were concerned as well about people coming back. They, yeah, they were concerned about people coming back. They were really concerned about war in space, space yes. being a frontier for war, and particular, in particular, nuclear war. So if you go and read that treaty, which honestly, don't. Um, <laughs> it's not that interesting. But it focuses really heavily on making sure that whatever national or international conflict is happening on earth doesn't get carried to space. So if you see someone from another nation floating aimlessly in space, you have to pick them up. You have to save them. You have to give them shelter. It's again, that survival over everything else. Um, and it's the same. You can't, you know, launch a nuclear weapon on the moon or whatever. Not that anyone has tried or wants to i don't think yet <laughs> let's say yet there was talks about the moon and nuclear weapons and stuff at some point and there's this really old paper that you can go and find discussing it but that's just like a weird anomaly so that is pre-moon landing that um treaty though the outer space treaty like two years pre-moon landing so there was something there and But what it was stopping was an issue of the time. And when you go back and read those things, it is very of the time. It's really well ratified. A lot of nations said, yep, I agree to that, because it's all pretty fair stuff. It doesn't really talk about more modern issues like conservation. Um, there are, there's another treaty, the Moon Agreement, that is only a few years after that, 78, 79, Um, but it was not well ratified. It only had 18 nations ratify it Ooh. in the world. We are one of them in Australia. Um, no spacefaring nation ratified it. So none of the nations that go into space ratified Ooh. that treaty. Ooh. Some consider it incomplete because it, the way it's worded sounds like it's incomplete. Um, but... The obligations under that treaty also kind of oppose some newer obligations of anyone who signed up to the Artemis Accords, which were created by the United States. Uh, so they're not, they're not a UN thing. It's not fully like every nation on Earth gets made aware and can ratify. And 
Originally, the idea was if you wanted to be part of the Artemis missions, which is going back to the moon, um, sending people back to the moon, sorry. Um, originally, you were going to have to sign up to these accords. That I don't think is the case anymore. It's become a bit more loosey-goosey. But people, like nations, not individuals, who want to be involved in those moon missions and how they sort of move forward onto Mars, those nations have uh, signed the Artemis Accords. It's just that the way the Artemis Accords in the United States interprets things like the moon agreement is not the same as how some would interpret the moon agreement (laughs) itself. And so Australia being part of both potentially is going to get caught in a, in a weird situation. It depends which lawyer you ask, and I'm not a lawyer, so it doesn't really matter what I think. But it leaves Australia in particular in a bit of a funny spot. The other nations that have signed the Artemis Accords mostly have not signed the Moon Agreement or ratified the Moon Agreement, so they're not in that issue. But like, in which ways they are different? It's to do with... Um, I actually have to think about it for a second. Um, it It's just sort of to do with, uh, like, claims of sovereignty and what the interpretation of sovereignty is. So, um, you know, is a, a base on the moon, like, sovereign, mm-hmm. quote-unquote, land of a nation? Does that count as national appropriation? Because you're not meant to appropriate land or resources for any one nation, what if it's a company that is doing this? Uh, who are they beholden to? Um, and it's not companies that are signing any of these things. It's nations. So then, yeah. But it's, it's mostly to do with um, sovereignty. Mm-hmm. Interesting. There's a bunch of science fiction books that talk about kind of like what it would be like. Andy Weir wrote The Marsh. He also wrote Artemis, which was an interesting kind of book on that. Have you read that one? Nope. I have not oh. read any of those. But okay. I've read about uh, half of Kim Stanley Robinson's Red Mars, of the Red Ooh, Mars, how Mars it, Green Mars. What did you think? It was good. Loving it so far. I've been nice. cracking on it for years and <laughs> just don't have the time to finish it. <laughs> fair, fair. But in that book, he raises a lot of really relevant issues that uh, are based on really, like, what was at the time very up-to-date science, and most of it actually holds up relatively well to today. Um, It's said that he did eight pages of reading per page of book. Whoa. And if you've read those things. Yeah. 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 If you've read those books or seen them, they're like 2,000 pages each. They're enormous. So, yeah, it's a lot of scientific literature that he went through. I don't know how, you know, true that is, but that's that's the word on the street. Um, And he he gets a lot of things right. You know, the involvement of transnational corporations. Uh, We now see it's less transnationals in the space sector and more private individuals with their massive companies. Think Mm -hmm. Elon Musk and SpaceX. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Virgin and all that. Virgin Galactic. Yeah, exactly. So we're we're already seeing that. And in particular, those um, private, like, enterprises and their billionaire CEOs are really interested in going to Mars, but what are they interested for? And if you think about it, it's mostly to live there, to have Earth 2.0. And that's not why 
space agencies want to go there. Space agencies are going there for scientific reasons. So it's again a little bit like what's happened with Antarctica. Um, it was originally a place to study, to understand better, to do science. And now you see this tourism to Antarctica and all the environmental impacts that have come with that as well. And you also see an interesting legal system for how we created our international treaties around Antarctica, where the nations who were going there got to write the treaties. Now, is that a great model to apply for space? Some say yes, some say no. If you limit it to only the nations going there, aren't you just limiting limiting it to mostly very well-off Western nations? You do also have China, India, the UAE as well um, in the space like in the second space race to Mars, but those are still very powerful nations internationally. What about other nations? It's it's space. We we all have an interest in it. Every culture for all of time has looked up at the stars and they have history and stories and like legend that goes along with everything up there. We all do. So there's a lot of interesting things when it comes to who you include in creating new rules for somewhere that maybe not a lot of people are going to go and not a lot of nations are going to go to, but it does in the end affect all of us somehow. That's really interesting. Um, I guess my next question is like, I know you might not be able to visit Mars, but would you want to? And what would you do there? If yes, <laughs> I absolutely want to visit Mars. It's 100% a life dream of mine. I would love to go and be an astronaut. And NASA, if you want me, <laughs> I'll do it. Post <laughs> me up there. I actually, I actually tried to sign up for a Mars mission when I was 17, but I was not a legal adult, and so I was not allowed. I've just been really into Mars forever. It's who I am as a person. <laughs> and at the time, that was a one-way trip, right? Like, oh yeah, you were gonna die up you, there. Yeah, they were like, yeah, don't, you're just gonna get over there and yeah, they were like, blast up there, have a party, die. I don't care. That was the whole situation. Thing, yeah, it was crazy. I remember there being a big push. I've also been interested in being an astronaut since I was little, so I, I definitely get. Yeah, anyone who has been interested in it, in it for like a couple of years will remember this big push. Yeah. So it's one of those things where. I was 17. Of course, I should not have blasted myself to Mars on a one-way <laughs> trip. And now that I'm a little older, I'm like, oh, that's not a great idea. Don't do that. But I would still love to go in the capacity of a research scientist. There's a lot of good work that you can do in conservation by being in the field. Um, mostly it feels like you're just looking around by looking <laughs> so, around scientifically kind of, but, but like yeah. you'd also know what to look for I remember in some of the mo early moon missions they didn't send geologists so they didn't know what to look for in the moon so they just bring back random things although one of the first astronauts on the moon was actually a geologist oh, really? by yep yep okay yep one of the first ones I forget if it was it wasn't the first Apollo mission, but it was one of those early Apollo missions. They sent okay. a geologist. So I know Apollo 13 was supposed to be one with a lot of with some geologists and scientists. Yeah. And then I th didn't make it. Mm. Like 14 or so, I think. Yeah. No, there has 
they've got a geologist to the moon. Yeah, <laughs> I'm pretty sure. Yes, because they did bring back some important rocks. And yes. that's 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 why we need your expertise <laughs> on Mars. Yeah, I've got to got to know what rocks to bring back. Exactly. But also, I mean, I'm not the biggest expert in what rocks to bring back. But what I really can do is if someone tells me here are all the important rocks and this is what we're thinking about all of them I can say well you know we've got this area this is a reasonable amount to take this is a reasonable sample this is not a reasonable sample and there's a certain amount of judgment in that and part of that the ability to judge that comes from experience in working in conservation of similar sites on earth and of course, you know, doing a PhD, studying it for a couple of years. Um, and there are reasons why you might take more or less at certain sites. It It's very varied. But the ability to say, oh, well, you know, actually, you could take a little bit more here. Or, no, probably don't take as much here. Or, oh, actually, this mineral, what we saw in the spectra, looks a bit different to what we're seeing on the ground. And so, actually, maybe you could drive a rover over this, or no, you can't, or you could blast a rocket here, no, you can't, that sort of stuff. And a lot of it we can work out from spectra, from space, but the spectra is only so good. Um, Some of the signatures you're getting back are going to require a fair bit of interpretation. (laughs) That's awesome and super cool. Definitely needed. And I know you told me that you will participate in like a Mars simulation on Earth. Can you tell a bit about that? Absolutely. Um, Yeah, I'm participating in a Mars analog facility known as the Mars Desert Research Station. It's in Utah in the US, and it's run by the Mars Society in America, uh, and the Mars Society of Australia is, I know, (laughs) special, um, is sending some missions over there. So I will be part of Crew 291. Boomerang 3 is what it's called. Yes. And I'm going in, hopefully, touch wood as the crew scientist. So part of what I'm doing over there is kind of what I would actually be doing if I got blasted to Mars, which is looking at how the other scientists do their job and seeing on the spot what is the impact that you are creating in this short time frame that we're there, as well as what has the impact been of... 20 years of this station operating is there something that we can see and measure through photographs through like from past studies compared to now um what is that and as well trying to understand if there is a negative impact from our present day sort of science and like short-term science can i modify people's field practices and say well instead of whacking this much rock and you take you know 50 percent of it could you just whack a smaller bit and take only 20%? Things like that. And seeing if those modified practices have an impact on the sort of mission timeframes, like survivability, that sort of stuff, because it's way better to test that on Earth where there's air to breathe and access to medical help if things go wrong. Not that I think anything would go that wrong, but better there, better here on Earth than there on Mars, you know? Mm-hmm. And thank you so much for being on our show. And for a last question, I wanted to ask if you have any advice for someone who is looking to be a Mars scientist or just looking to be a scientist in general. I 
love giving advice. So absolutely. And thank you so much for having me on the show as well. It's been a blast. Um, my advice would probably be just do whatever you love. Uh, I didn't come into uni thinking I was going to study space. I thought I was doing too bad in all my high school classes to do that. But actually, you just come back to it in the end. If you do what you love, it'll just work out in the end. But also, it's an industry where if you're not a cis straight white man, it can be a bit challenging. And I would definitely say just speak out, yell at people, tell them that they're wrong, tell them what they're doing is wrong, because it can be a bit rough at times. This has been really great advice. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, this was Boiling Point, the weekly science show on Eastside Radio 89.7 FM. We'll be back with a new science story next week. Bye for now. Bye. Bye. I want to be a spaceman I want to be a so bad